Hey, everybody, this is Alana with Dealing with Donor Conception. This is our 16th episode, and I'm very excited. We're going to read some more stories from anonymousus.org, which is a site that I created in 2010-2011 to create a safe place for not just donor-conceived people, but also parents, uh, sperm and egg donors, surrogates, even, you know, friends of and um, acquaintances, uh, adoptees, anybody whose life has been impacted by third-party reproduction, to give them a safe place where they could write their stories, write the truth about their experiences, and not have to worry about showing their face, people knowing their name. All the stories are truly anonymous. I have no way of knowing who the authors are. And I created a document called um, the best of documents, so the best stories that were submitted to me in the first few years of the website. And I, it's, I need to create another one, but uh, for now I just have the one. And I wanted to share with you three stories, two from sperm donors and one story from an egg donor. And... Um, Also, it's Christmas. Christmas is coming up. I hope you guys have a very happy holiday season and a happy, happy new year and best of luck and everything um, for your goals for the new year. But the first story I wanted to share with you is called Donor Father Seeking Children. He begins, in 1985, I signed up to be a semen donor. As a college student who was approaching middle age, I needed the money. The pay was $35 per donation, which was substantially more than I was earning in any of my other student jobs. I entered the program mainly because of the money. I had little social life and no romantic life. Though still hopeful, I knew in my heart that I would probably never have my own conventional family. Helping a real, live family that was unable to conceive seemed like an honorable thing to do. Becoming a semen donor was my way of connecting to the larger society, even if it were a bloodless and passionless way. I never thought through the issues having to do with infertility and anonymous semen donation and what this means to the child. After about a year in the program, I was told I had reached the prescribed limit of children produced and that my services would no longer be needed. Born around 1986, my children would probably be celebrating their 28th birthdays this year. People used to believe that the less the donor father had to do with the family, the better, as it was the family, not the donor, who mattered most in the child's upbringing. I'm happy that in the past few decades, the ground has shifted from the right of a family to have a child to the rights of the child. I hope that the trend will continue and that the great civil rights effort of this century will be the comprehensive rights of young people. Knowing who you are and where you're coming from is a fundamental right like food, clothing, and shelter. A child should be told who their surrogate father or mother is as soon as they're able to understand. They can then make their decision about what they want to do with the information. But lying to the child about who they are is never acceptable. To my surrogate children, 
If you feel happiness, know that I'm happy to have played an important role in bringing you into the world. If, however, you feel pain in not being able to know your father, I know that your pain is real. I hurt for you. I hurt for all of us. That was the end of the first story. Here's another one. It's called, I Donated My Semen, Experiences and Reflections. Below are my thoughts and varied experiences of being a sperm donor over nearly 10 years in the UK. I've been a known donor, a donor to a fertility clinic, and I have even provided sperm privately. I hope these ramblings might help you decide what option, if any, is right for you. My first experience of sperm donation was when I was a grad student for a year. I was staying with a couple, K and M, as a lodger, and found out three months in that K had a very low sperm count. Both he and M had stressful shift jobs, which made it impossible to conceive naturally after years of trying. He and M had had several failed attempts at IVF, which had caused emotional and financial strain. One reason why they had a lodger was to help out financially with the mortgage. Kay shared that they were looking for a known donor to help create their family. They said that they had looked into buying sperm through a clinic, but decided that they would prefer to have some personal contact over the selection process of the donor. But they had few, if any, people that they could ask. Being asked if I would help was a shock. But after seeing their distress and sensing the disrepair they obviously felt, I slept on it and agreed the next day. They had spent thousands on treatments and consultations, and Kay explained the pressures that this had placed on their relationship and finances. Here was a unique opportunity to help this couple, whom I had begun to know and who had shared a huge amount with me, their home, life, and dreams. I figured that most semen probably got wasted against a latex membrane, Kleenex tissue, or down a plug hole, and there was a real meaningful way to do something productive with mine. They asked me to have some tests done and make donations through a clinic, which was helpful in terms of maintaining boundaries with them and ensuring that legal responsibility for any child born would rest with them. My cooperation was rewarded by being able to stay rent-free. It was a bit weird at first, attending the center, having blood tests and medical history taken, and having to produce samples and coming back to their house knowing that these would be released for their use. But it was agreed that we would not talk about the process, as this was easiest for them, I think. There were surprisingly few awkward moments. I may have been living under their roof, but what was lovely was that K and M were very much in love, and my role was very much a spectating facilitator. Several months in and before I had to leave, M fell pregnant. Seeing the joy I was personally able to give to this couple was wonderful and rewarding beyond words. I still keep in contact with them, arm's length, and they asked me to help out again, which resulted in a second pregnancy and bundle of joy. There are two beautiful boys with two exceptionally loving parents and one very proud donor. After my first positive experience, I moved cities, but the rush I got from donating sperm really was addictive. My first experience was very personal, but I knew this was unlikely to be replicated, so I did what any young man wanting to contribute to the human gene pool would do, and I registered at a sperm bank. The experience was a complete contrast, a 
battery of tests, lots of probing questions, and a session with a counselor. It was hard at times to see the humanity amongst the sterile surfaces, the white coats and the petri dishes. I remember feeling nervous and excited during my first visit, completing a questionnaire and being shown around the clinic, and then going to the donation room to masturbate. Hearing how less than 5% of potential donors cut the mustard made me worried. I needn't have been. A week after my visit, I received a call to say that my sample exceeded the standards in terms of volume, sperm count, viscosity, and mobility. The donor coordinator was particularly enthusiastic in telling me that my post-thaw count was in ex excess of 20 million per milliliter, and that given my education, ethnicity, and eye color, she explained, I would be a highly priced donor. I'd be paid 15 pounds per ejaculate, 10 pounds up front and 5 pounds paid in arrears as a lump sum six months after my last donation, as if to place my involvement on footing with the financial transaction. All this talk about my fertility, though, made me feel precious and almost superhuman, but that was short-lived, overshadowed by the imperative of the clinic to get me on the donor conveyor belt as soon as possible. There is an acute shortage of donor sperm, I learned. The statistics and references to parameters and, quote, quality of specimen used by the clinic really just brought home that my purpose for the next 20 weeks would be to produce high-quality semen samples to be frozen, thawed, and used in fertility treatments. People were depending on me. I had a job to do and joined the elite club of around 500 sperm donors recruited each year. The expectancy and pressure is not for the faint-hearted. Having to book appointments and masturbate on demand was at times dehumanizing, but the staff always courteously reminded me about the difference each yield would make. If I had any reason to doubt this, I just needed to look at the copious numbers of pictures of newborns sent in by successfully treated patients that adorned the staff notice board. The process certainly requires dedication. Planning your life around weekly visits and trying to observe the required 72-hour abstinence period so as not to have to run the gauntlet of having to hand in a near-empty cup to the nurse. After final tests, my samples were ready for release, and I left the program. A few years later, I inquired about the outcomes and found out that eight children had been born from my donations. Five boys, three girls. The clinic still had frozen samples, and mentioned that as up to 10 children or 10 families can be created from each donor's sperm, it was likely this number would grow as patients returned to the clinic. This was some butterfly effect. Because I donated before 2005, no identifying information will be made available. I have no problems with this. No one has any say over the circumstances of their conception, but I hope that all those born from my donations have loving and honest parents and feel no sense of lack of identity or lack of self-worth. Self My main reservation was feeling a bit like a commodity. Being compensated for each donation effectively and religiously being told to maximize volume and sperm count through abstinence and lifestyle choices, being given a donor number, and no doubt featuring in some catalog to match supply with demand, it all commodified the process. 
I was also amazed at the discrepancy between the amount paid for my sperm, 15 pounds per ejaculate, compared with the hundreds of pounds recipients paid for the privilege of probably having a portion of it. The last experience I had of donating was helping a lesbian couple seeking a donor through the internet, and this was by far the riskiest enterprise I took on. They did not want to go through a fertility clinic, partly for financial reasons, but mainly due to some ideological opposition to the state, as they put it, sanctioning their family. They had been trying to get a donor for some time, but had been previously let down. They cared little for the semen analysis information and the family medical history I offered, which was surprising. Their main concern was that I would agree not to have any contact or involvement with any child born from any donation, which was uncontroversial in my mind, much to their relief. I understood their reasons, and after weeks of emails going back and forth, we agreed that I would be on call to produce fresh semen samples in a hotel room booked by them near to me to coincide with ovulations. Shortly after ejaculation, I phoned them to return to the room and left them in the room with the DIY insemination kit and cup. This was a far less invasive, less complicated, and a more enjoyable affair. Over the course of two years and multiple hotel visits, I was able to help them conceive two babies, a boy and a girl. I later found out that legally, if I were traced or traceable, I would be financially responsible for them, and that sperm donation can only lawfully be carried out through regulated and licensed clinics, so I would not advise private donation for others. Also, clinics will consider the well-being of any child born from your donations before approving any treatment, and private one-to-one -one donations do not offer this safeguard for those who understandably want some reassurance about whom they are donating to. I do think of the children, but I have a family of my own now, and I am resolved not to talk about my donor years. This may seem selfish, but compartmentalization avoids me becoming over-sentimental about my important but very limited role in the lives of the 12 children and more that I helped make. I hope I'm not arrogant or misguided in thinking that I have spread a lot of joy, and of course, egotistically, I'm proud of my genetic legacy. Sperm donation is unique and amazing, but needs to be thought through in terms of the processes, which can be dehumanizing and the consequences to you, your family, and the individuals who may grow up not knowing anything about the man who helped them into being. Um, that was the second story from a sperm donor. Now I'm going to read to you um, a piece called From an Anonymous Egg Donor. And she writes the following. I'm not putting any of my energy into making this read eloquently. It's more a diary entry than an academic essay. I'm 28 years old, turning 29 in a few months. I have a history degree from a private university, which I obtained in 20, 2008. And I've been working on a master's in anthropology and sociology. But I'm putting that on hold for now. I'm running my own business and pretty happy with the way things are going. I enjoy reading immensely, science fiction, fantasy, nonfiction. I love it all. 
I'm not hurting financially, but the money I got for donating my eggs was a nice addition to my bank account. It's in savings with the rest of it. Money was not my primary motivation, but people always ask me about the money first. Put yourself in my position. You want to do something and you're being offered $8,000 to do it? Would you turn it down? I was not exploited. I was not pressured. I have referred friends to donate that have not been pressured or exploited. I care about people. I think that I think that can be inferred by my interest in anthropology and sociology. I thought it, it would be great to help someone make their life with my donation. Another reason I donated, I am very interested in science. Watching the process was fascinating, and I very much enjoyed seeing my body change from a perspective I've never seen before. I learned a lot. Your parents wanted you very much. They went through so much to have you. In order to produce the 20-plus eggs necessary for a fair shot at making the perfect one, I had to give myself shots in the stomach daily, more than once. I had to get up far earlier than I normally would to go to the doctor, at first twice a week, and then every single day. And I was so tired from that and the hormones. My arms were bruised from frequent blood draws. I actually cried with relief when the nurse took it from the left arm instead of the right. She was great. Few nurses have ever been able to get anything from that tiny vein. I was emotional at my retrieval. The anesthesiologist was so comforting. I woke up before I knew I was asleep, recovered half an hour or so, and then went home. In the following days, I developed the worst pain I have ever felt in my life up to now. I've been through some serious stuff, but this pain had me speechless on the floor of my apartment. I was suffering from OHSS, ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome. My ovaries were full of fluid and several times bigger than they should be. It was excruciating. Mercifully, it stopped being unbearable after the first day. The whole time, even through the worst of it, I was thinking of my recipients and hoping she and her partner would get a child out of this. I'm not discounting my pain, but I know the pain, emotional and physical, that they had gone through up to this point was worth mine. That's really all I have to say. I'm starting my second donation cycle soon. I wanted you to read a story from a real donor, not a horror story, and feel better about your origins if you were perhaps feeling conflicted. You are one of the most wanted children on the earth, and people you will never meet went through so much to give you life. Remember that any time you feel low. So those are three stories from three different donors. I hope that you enjoyed them. I hope that um, you are getting something out of this podcast. It was, uh, um, it's been almost 10 years since since we started the Anonymous Us project. It's nine years. And I've just learned so much about reproductive technologies through having the anonymousus.org website. And I'm so thankful um, about this podcast because we've been already been able to interview some amazing people. I hope you check out um, the the interviews that we've done previously and stay tuned for more interviews to come. This is uh, not just a national conversation, but an international 
conversation about the future of the human race and how babies will um, are being made, will be made, have been made in the past, and, and, and what it means to be human. So thank you for being here and being a part of this conversation. In the show notes, uh, you can find um, a link to, if you have some story suggestion, not story, topic suggestions that you would like to be uh, discussed on air, you can chime in and tell me what you're thinking. Also, if you want to support the show with a donation, there's a Patreon page um, where you can support us financially. Nobody's paying me to do this. This is just a... Um, just a passion and something that I want to share with the world. So uh, thank you for your support if you decide you want to do that. So Merry Christmas, Happy New Year's to everybody, and we'll see you on the next episode.